to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again on Nonprofit Lowdown. This is super exciting today. My guest is Howard Cohen, partner of Mazars. He's been with Mazars for 12 years, and today we're talking about audits and following the money. So welcome, Howard. Thank you. Happy to be here. Obviously, I have a lot of executive director friends, and the minute they hear the word audit, they start to shudder a little bit. So can you tell me a little bit about when folks are considering accounting firms, what is it that they should be looking for? Well, there's no reason to shudder. It's something that it's a process, and like anything else, the first one might be a little harder, but then it gets easier. But the important thing is to have a firm uh, and the people that understand not-for-profits. So don't go to somebody who'll do it for you as a favor because they want to help you out, which is a great thing, but if they don't do not-for-profits, it's very specialized, and you want you know someone that understands not only the industry uh, and your business, but the needs of not-for-profits and the needs of, of whether they're smaller or larger uh, and understands what they're going through. So that's the key factor so that they could help address the items that need to be done. And is it best practice to change firms at some regular interval? We, we don't believe so. I think like any other service, you should always evaluate your service provider. Are you getting what you need? Mm-hmm. Or is the service good? Mm-hmm. And are they helping you? After several years, an auditor could get, I'll say, lazy, and you want to make sure that they are on their feet. They are acting swiftly and not taking you for granted. And if they're doing that and you feel you're getting the service, what, you know, there's no need to switch to somebody else just for the sake of switching. Because we're talking about nonprofit, we're always thinking about the bottom line. Can you give me a sense of the general price range of an annual audit? That's going to vary based on the size of the organization and the the size of the audit firm. So I really can't give a general rate because every firm would be would be different. But it unfortunately, it's there's a minimum cost to do an audit. Mm -hmm. So whether your organization has one million dollars or $2 $2 million of revenue, the price is probably going to be very similar. You don't get efficiencies. You know, when it goes up to $5 million, $10 million, the cost doesn't double and triple as you go up. So the efficiencies don't run in until you get higher. So that's the problem with a lot of smaller entities mm-hmm. that they face. As a percentage of budget, that f- the higher your revenue, the less percent, of course, it would be. And can you remind us again, what is the minimum threshold at which it's necessary to have an annual audit? So it depends where you are, but we're in New York State, which uh, we all deal with here. So New York State requires an annual audit if you are soliciting funds, one, and you have revenue of over $700,000. You would need a review, which is less than an audit. If you're over two hundred and fifty thousand, I see. So you don't need if you're under two hundred and fifty, nothing is required. Between two fifty and seven hundred, it's a review, and over seven hundred, it's an actual full audit. That is correct, and okay. that's in New York State. In New York State, so for the new executive director, and particularly for somebody who's never done an audit, how should one prepare for an audit? So the best way to prepare for the audit is to know your accounts and have everything reconciled. 
and understand what is there. Most auditors, well, any good auditor will give you a list of what they need well in advance so you could prepare. And the best way to prepare when they ask for a schedule is to actually give them a schedule of what's in the account, not print out your QuickBooks detail or, or so, is to go through and make sure they're getting only what's there. You know, QuickBooks, while is great, will show the ins, the outs, and then you don't want to pay somebody to sort through that. You want to give them exactly what's in that, that account. And to do the work before they come in, make sure your bank accounts are reconciled. Make sure each account uh, somebody has gone through and it's proper. And that way it'll, it'll go a lot smoother. What are some best practices that people should consider? I mean, you said reconciling accounts. Do you recommend that a monthly basis? Well, certain accounts like cash should be monthly. A mm-hmm. bank reconciliation should be done monthly always is just a standard control. In other accounts, I would not wait till year end, but they don't have to be monthly. Mm-hmm. Whether it's semi-annually even is fine, just so stuff is fresher. When you review the account, you're looking at something that happened just within a few months rather than 11 months ago. Mm-hmm. And that'll be easier then to, to make sure those items are posted correctly. One thing I'm wondering about, and I've heard that this is a common concern, is the reconciling the difference between the way finance reconciles money and the way a development or fundraising department reconciles money. Can you speak a little bit about that? That's been going on forever, since yeah. I've been in anyway, so not forever, but long time. And that's always hard. Uh, development wants to raise money any way they can. Finance needs to know a little more. Is it unrestricted money? Is it restricted for a specific program? Development might raise money in a five-year pledge, which is fantastic, a million dollars over five years, but the organization can only use 200000 now, and they have to wait for the rest. So again, great pledge, but the organization's not getting a million dollars today. So one of the things is communication between the departments to make sure they are talking and seeing in what needs are. If, if, I, if development raises money, raises $10 million that's restricted, and you still got to pay your unrestricted bills, mm-hmm. your general operating expenses. So you need, you always need, that's always the trade-off. You want to raise as much money as you can, but you always need money for your general purposes. So it's always communication, because development shouldn't be out there raising it. We're going to get money to build a building, but then you can't pay uh, your teachers to teach in the, you know, their students. Right. So. so let's talk about pledges for a second, because I didn't necessarily know what uh, was necessary as far as pledges. So can you speak a little bit about what kind of backup you need uh, in terms of pledges? So for an audit, the best backup is a letter from the donor. Mm-hmm. Uh, many donors who give substantial sums you know, will write a letter. Here, please accept my pledge of $25,000, and this is for you know, Program X. Or, or it's silent, which is the best. If it's silent, it means you could use it for any of your, your organization's mission. I always say unrestricted is my favorite word in the whole vocabulary. Correct. So you, you do want it. If it's silent, it's great. But th- that's the best support is a letter. Uh, and then that would be supported, obviously, by a, a check, which mm-hmm. a copy of the check is great. So if they do not write a letter, a copy of the check is, you know, st- is the next best evidence 
uh, or today emails or anything that the donor uh, you know has submitted that's coming from from outside the organization. So, but when you get into restrictions and other items, it gets more tricky. If you're doing a fundraising campaign to raise money for a specific cause, then all that money co- that comes in technically is restricted for that cause, but a donor may not indicate it. So you do have to track it. Because it would be misleading if you sent out a mailing, please give us money to do program X, and everybody sent it in, the em- in an envelope, and you didn't record it in program X, but they, they thought they were sending it for that also does it get confusing around fiscal year ends so i remember when i did the audit there was always like conversation that went on between finance and development for those last few checks that came in either just before year end or just after Mm -hmm. year end like what year does it fall into well cutoff is important and the uh, contribution should be recorded in the year it is made so a contribution is made when a donor gives you the money or makes an unconditional promise to give. Mm-hmm. I will give you this money is an unconditional promise. So if the donor says that and puts the check in the mail December 28th, that's a pledge that you should record in that calendar year end. But you might not receive the cash and deposit it in the bank until you know January 3rd mm-hmm. when everybody comes back to work. So you do have to look at cutoff and make sure it's appropriate uh, you know, some don't. If the donor, if you didn't know it was coming in and it just appeared in the mail on the third, many organizations look at the check date. Clearly, if the donor wrote the check in December and it's postmarked, you could see that. So, you know, the auditor, there's some judgment there. I think the auditor and the client would look at the judgment and just try and get it, you know, reasonable and get it right. Can you walk us through some uh, reasonable? financial controls that especially a small nonprofit could use? Because I often think about, you know, obviously with control, separation of duties is key, but if you if you only have a staff of, say, five people and you don't have departments per se, how do you make sure right. that you have the proper controls in place? Right. So when you don't have segregation of duties because of the minimum number of people, the key thing is cash, is to watch the cash so that there are in, at least enough controls on that. So what we recommend in those cases is to have only one check signer, mm-hmm. usually uh, being either the you know the the executive director or the president whatever their title is, if you can't get a board member, a board member would be better, but they don't always aren't always available to come in uh, except for over a certain limit. There should always be a, a limit depending on size whether it's $2,500 or $5,000 that you need a second signature of a board member. But more importantly, if for some reason that can't be done, but, and it's control of the checks, don't leave the checks in a drawer. But what we recommend is the bank statement be mailed on these small organizations, that the bank statement be mailed directly to somebody outside of the organization. So whether it's a board member, the treasurer, generally, or even the you know founder or executive director, if it's mailed to the house, mm-hmm. not to the organization, they could open it up and make sure that it looks reasonable mm-hmm. and that the checks, you look for any, 
they don't give checks in the bank statements anymore. In the old days, I'd say, look at the checks and make sure you, you know the names. Are those vendors of the organization? Are those grantees? Are they, you know, you don't see on their, uh, you know, Howard Cohen company. Well, who's, who's that? Why right. are we paying Howard Cohen uh, on there? So that is a, they get it di- directly in a great check. Mm-hmm. And that way you, if somebody was doing something, you would detect it. So you can't always have a preventative control in a mm-hmm. small organization, but you, if you have a good detective control, you, have, you give yourself a chance, and hopefully those policies are communicated so people know it's being checked. I see. And that's key. What about some preventative controls? Because you mentioned that. So the preventative control is, is having only one authorized signer and locking up the checkbook so only they have access. Mm-hmm. And then having... Another person, really you would have two. The control would be to have one person with access to the checkbook mm. and, and not be a signer and the other person be the signer. Right. So that it, you would have to have two people involved to sign a check. So then you have a segregation of duty. That's the only way to have a preventative control is, is a segregation. What about uh, f- for revenue, like as far as segregation of duties for you know, donations that are mailed in as an example? So what we always recommend on, on all revenue is the revenue, the checks all go to one person, not in the accounting department, who makes a copy of the checks or a listing and then gives the checks to the accounting department or to somebody else to deposit. Mm-hmm. And then a third person reconciles the list with the deposit. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you have a, a control that it all has to match up. Again, you need two or three people. Mm-hmm. For that, so as an executive director of a small nonprofit, what what should I do in order to conduct random controls to make sure that all of the money that's actually coming in is is making it into the bank and going out appropriately? So the most important thing is the tone at the top to let all your employees know whether it's one or two or twenty how important it is to do things right. Uh, eventually you'll have an employee manual and you would put that uh, those that information there but is to set the tone that you know that's not tolerated and then to also periodically as you said to check things to ask questions you know i was looking at the deposit the other day and i thought something came in like you can make it up or you could you know just something so they know it's being checked because generally people Fraud happens when nobody's checking, mm. and people are up on this, and they get the sense, boy, nobody's checking anything around here, and I could take something, and they'll never know. And sure enough, they take it, and nobody knows, mm-hmm. and then they do it again, and mm-hmm. that's where it grows. So just by being involved, I, I always say review the bank you know, on, on receipts or disbursements. Review the bank rec, and even if it's perfect, ask a question. You know, by the way, what was this reconciling item? Or expense reports. I always say, what was this for again? You know, oh, that was a taxi to that meeting we had to go. Oh, okay. Instead of, oh, that was, a, that was my personal dinner. I, I don't know how that got on there. But if you're asking, they'll have to answer. And they, it's harder to lie to somebody's face, although uh, done, but then just slipping it in. So it's a, a trust but verify philosophy. Always. Okay, so we've set up our accounts or ready for the auditors to come in. What happens during an audit? So in an audit, the auditors are verifying everything, and that's uh, something we use because we don't we believe our clients 
are honest, but we have to verify everything regardless. So the auditors are going to look at all supporting documentation to make sure that there is support for things. So if you have revenue, we want to look if there's a, a letter from the donor. If not, we want to see make a copy of the check. If you receive a million small checks, then don't make a million copies, but there, there's got to be processes in place. You know, one of the requirements, the IRS requires acknowledgments to all donors who give over $250. So for every donation, you have to send out an acknowledgment. So there again, there's another balance and checks and balance there to go. But the auditors are going to look at whatever they need to. So they want to see invoices. If there's an expense on the books, they're going to pick ones, some at because they're large, some because they're interesting, and some at random, to look at the actual support. Is there a valid invoice? Mm-hmm. And we're trained, my, my auditors are trained to ask questions. When we look at things like travel, I want to know, why did you have, where did you go with this plane ticket? And I hope the answer is, well, we went to a conference uh, for this great program that we're part of, mm-hmm. where something is opposed to that. Well, why are there two people on that plane in on that plane ticket i thought you went you know who'd you go with and hopefully the you know the answer is somebody from the organization that attended and it could be verified as opposed to well i brought my girlfriend i didn't i didn't you know no one thing that i always forgot to do is when i had expenses for meals that i would forget to put mm-hmm. down who i was having the meal with and why so was that something that you well, often recommend? Well, that not only do I recommend, that's an IRS regulation. Yeah. So the IRS, should they audit, you would, would disallow that expense or, or something. So it's very important to document that. Mm-hmm. The business purpose and who attended uh, is, is important in any expense, but more important with meals and other items like that because you have to be conducting business I see. Uh, on it. So how many days would you expect auditors to be actually in your physical office during an audit? So again, depends on the size. If you're, if it's your first audit and you, let's say you just went over the 700,000, say you have a million dollars of revenue. Generally, uh, uh, you could get that audit uh, field work done. You'll start before you get in and planning and, and now with uh, email and portals, you could even send stuff over. So the auditors could be really familiar with what's going on by the time you walk in the door and generally, you would need maybe, you know, two, two to three days tops, depending on how, if everything's organized. The first audit is the toughest. The auditors need to understand your systems, your controls. So even if they're basic, they're going to want to understand the things I was talking about, who signs checks, who approves invoices, how does cash receipts come in? How do they get into the bank? Mm-hmm. So the auditors needs that first year will document it all. And then in subsequent years, they only have to update it. I if see. there's no changes, easier. If as there's changes, it goes. So the first year has a, a few more forms mm-hmm. to go through. And then, go, they'll, like I said, they'll have a list. And they're going to really go down your accounts. The, you know, cash. Can I see the bank reconciliations? Can I see the bank statements? They will confirm with the bank directly. Mm-hmm. Pledges, same thing. Can I see the letters? If you're getting uh, contributions from foundations or grants, of course, they always have uh, a letter outlining the terms of it. Individuals, as I mentioned earlier, if there's no letter, maybe a copy of the check, some other support. Uh, It's important to note on that if there's multi-year pledges, because that's a receivable. 
Mm-hmm. And many organizations don't book receipts. You know, the small ones, they don't know. They get $25,000. they are happy. They book a $25,000 contribution. But the letter might say, here's our from our $50,000 pledge, here's twenty five, and we'll pay you twenty five next year. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have to book a receivable, and the auditors generally will help with that uh, on the smaller organizations. And then go through whatever, if there's property equipment, if you have an office and you did improvements, you bought a desk, they'll look at the invoices to that, make sure it matched up, and then either make sure the depreciation is correct on those or in a lot of cases for the smaller organizations, we'll help the organization prepare the depreciation schedule uh, and things like that. And then look for restrictions on contributions. Again, you might have got 25000 but if it's for Program X and you didn't do Program X yet, that's got to be temporarily restricted at year end. Or actually, which is a whole nother webcast, there's a new not-for-profit standard out, so the terminology unrestricted and temporarily restricted is is going away. Really? As of one one as of twelve thirty one eighteen. So all financial statements for calendar year ends will be using with donor restrictions and without donor restrictions. I see. Well we so. will definitely have to talk about that in our next podcast. This might be a very basic question, but I'm wondering you talk about copies of things and copies of letters and so forth, but and knowing that we're moving towards a digital age where we're trying to get rid of paper copies of things, are digital copies just as good? Yes. Okay. Yeah. As we, In fact, everything is electronic. We don't really want, when I say we want a copy, we don't want paper. We want you to upload it to our secure portal. Okay, perfect. Uh, or email or whatever you prefer. Okay. Uh, and then we put it right in the file. Uh, if you give us paper, we scan it in anyway. Oh, perfect. So We are living in the paperless age. Yes. Uh, and I know, having gone through our own audit, that there are aspects of doing interviews with people. Can you say a little bit more about who you're interviewing and what are you asking and why? Sure. The audit standards require the auditor to ask about fraud. Mm-hmm. And it's it, this came out of the Enron scandal, which we all remember. So back then, when the auditors came in and they asked people, they said, well, didn't you know about this? This was so massive. And everybody said, oh, yeah, we knew about it. And they said, well, how come you never said anything? And the answer was, well, nobody asked. Mm. So they quickly wrote a standard that said you have to ask. Right. So basically, the order will pick management personnel, non-management personnel, accounting personnel, non-accounting personnel. And the numbers, depending on the size of the organization... But it's always good to get, obviously, accounting people, but also just some, some program people or other people in, you know, that might not be involved in the accounting and ask them, you know, one, we, you know, do they know of any fraud? So it is an outright question. Or one thing that's interesting that we ask is, did anything come up during the year, especially of management, where did it come up where maybe you looked at it and it turned out to be nothing? So we just want to know, was there, you know, sometimes things are just signals or signs where something came up and maybe it is a nothing or maybe there's something else there that we might want to double check to make sure as the auditors. So you ask about that, but we also ask about the tone at the top. You know, how do you, what is the the tone here? Do you think people check things and is your, you know, that? So we want to hear what they have to say and how do they know what the tone is. Some, you know, in large organizations, like, oh, it's in the personnel manual. And this and other ones, it's done by example. The leader leads by example. 
and might talk to all the employees if there's only a few employees and let them know. So we want to know, was that communicated to them? Mm-hmm. And we want to know how the managers supervise. If you're one location, it's much easier to walk around and supervise everybody. Should you have multiple locations, do managers or certainly directors and things go to other locations? Because that's where problems happen when people, again, feel nobody's looking at us, nobody's watching, we could do whatever we want here. So it's very important that a presence is wherever the the people are working. So speaking of oversight and management, I'm wondering, what is the board's involvement in an audit? Like, how should they be involved? Should there be an audit committee? Like, what, what's best practice in this area? Well, under New York, New York State law, if you have over certain amounts of revenue, you must have an audit committee. And if you have over $10 million in revenue, the audit committee has to be active and, and meet, you know, with the auditors. So, it's, so I always recommend you have an audit committee. Uh, and the audit committee and the board are really the ones responsible for for the organization but and for the audit. In theory, they're the ones that hire the auditors. Mm. So they will delegate to management a lot, which is fine, but uh, they are the ones that are doing this for the oversight and for the protection of the organization. So their involvement should be to make sure they're comfortable with the auditors, make sure somebody is reviewing policies you know you wouldn't want to come to the audit committee with a a weakness in controls and they just had no idea about it do do you know you have you know you let the secretary sign checks and nobody even looks at it an extreme example but you know hopefully it would be the answer would be yes but we are looking at it because we knew we had to do that for this reason Mm -hmm. rather than really they have to know what's going on and uh, their job is to offer advice. You know, it's hard if, as a CPA, a lot of people want, you know, ask me to help out and be on their, you know, I am on a board. And, of course, they made me treasurer and head of the audit committee and stuff. So I know what to do, so it's easier. But for others, the thing is just to, to ask questions and make sure you're asking the tough questions of, of the executive director and the personnel that they are monitoring these things. And so... Is the work then, too, of the audit committee to approve the audit once completed? That is correct. They should. If, if it's a formal audit committee, they really should approve it before it's completed, if possible. And if not, it should be in the minutes to be done afterwards. And what is the threshold at which one needs to have a, a, a separate audit committee? So I believe over a million dollars of revenue, you must have an audit committee. And then as revenue goes up, what they have to do becomes more more and more prescriptive. I see. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is of importance that listeners should know about audits? Well, I think about audits, the, the key is not to, to get an order also that you like. So it shouldn't be an, an, an enemy coming in. I mean, they are auditors and they're looking at things, but uh, not most good not-for-profit auditors are pretty friendly. They understand the environment. And that's why I enjoy working with my not-for-profits because although I'm an auditor, it's it's a much better relationship than if you audit a public company. Mm-hmm. I always joke when you go to a public company, they don't want to hear about a journal entry or anything. They're, they're releasing their financial statements at, on, on a certain date. And if you come up with any adjustments, you're in big trouble. Everybody's in big trouble. But on a not-for-profit, when you come in, tell us we're doing it right. Oh, was this wrong? We'll correct it. It's a much 
better atmosphere mm-hmm. in there. So teamwork is important because your first audit, you're not going to know anything. So the auditor should be patient and teach. And then the smarter you get, the easier it becomes on the audit, auditor next year. Yeah, and I will say, Howard, you, you were our auditor, and one thing that I didn't even think about until you brought it up was that I could always call and ask for advice about anything that may come up. And so, you know, right. I thought that's why you were a great partner. So, oh, thank you. But you know, anyone who has an audit uh, audit firm should feel that they have a partner in the work and can call them up for other things uh, other than outside of the audit. Correct. Well, you, you should call. Always call if there's a question. As an auditor, the one th- I would I would want to talk to my clients regularly, and I always said I would never want to come in at your end and find you bought a building or right. you did something without even letting me know. But even if there's any transaction that's out of the ordinary, if you have any questions, call and make sure here's how we want to do it, mm-hmm. and and it might be that's great. Go ahead. Or no, no, you got to look out for this, this, and this, yep. and then everybody's better off. The auditor knows about it. You could do it, you know, correctly and or address certain things if there's any issues. We audit so many clients, we've seen a lot of things before. So that's where, you know, I seem like a genius because I go, oh, you're doing that? You have to do this. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that two years ago when somebody did it. I had to learn it, but now I know it when you call. Ah, uh, you have so wisdom. I, if that's what it's called, I, I just hope I have a good enough memory to remember everything I've seen. And can I mention one thing about not audits? Because this is going to affect all not-for-profits. And I just want to, if people are listening, the smaller ones it may not affect. But new, under the new tax law, which everybody heard about, there's new requirements that affect not-for-profits. And if a not-for-profit has uh, any, uh, provide employee transportation benefits. Mm-hmm. Now, in New York State, if you have over 20 employees, you're required by, by New York State to have a plan. Like you get a your metro card tax free, right? Something, so that's now taxable to not for profits. Oh, uh, under the law, since since on a on a for profit they don't get a deduction for it. On a not for profit, they actually fi- have to file a nine ninety t and mm-hmm. pay a tax on it. And the same if they provide parking to their employees. Uh, so I just want to mention it. If you have that, either a a transit employee transportation benefit or employer-provided parking, please speak to your accountants and let them know because uh, it uh, will have to get addressed. Actually, that reminds me, I did have one last question for you, which is how are the tax laws changing uh, with respect to donors? Because, I mean, I haven't kept up on on my tax law, unfortunately, but I'm curious like, what so, the impact will be. So the law changed... Not only in that itemized deductions, the threshold for a standard deduction, if you do your own tax return, went up. For a married couple, it's $24,000. So what that means is if you don't have itemized deductions over $24,000, you get to just use the $24,000 threshold, and it's 12000 for a single person. So what itemized deductions are a number of things, and one itemized deduction is charitable contributions. So in the past, the threshold was much less. So if somebody, and with living in New York, they limited the deduction for state taxes and real estate taxes, which put most people who, who live in New York or own a home here right over the limit. So any charitable contribution would have been a deduction for them. Now, 
many people might not hit that 24000 So if you give $1,000 to your favorite charity, if you don't have other deductions over 24000 that would not be deductible for you. Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, so far the results aren't in, but there is a fear that many people might not give to charity because they used to give to their friend's son every year because they got the deduction and his, you know, they wanted to do that for their friend. But now if they don't get the deduction, they might not do it. I hope, while that's a good benefit to get, I hope people aren't giving just to get a tax deduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope people will still give, but it is a, a consideration. But big donors will be over the threshold mm-hmm. and, and it shouldn't affect them. Got it. I mean, potentially what it could mean is that folks might give bigger sums over, you know, every other year. That's what what some advisors are recommending is don't give every year, give every other year and double it. So that way you will get the bang in that year. Mm -hmm. So the organization just gets the money maybe a year later. Mm -hmm. But you get and you get your deduction. Mm, interesting. Well, we'll have to see how it all shakes out in the philanthropy world. Yes, soon enough. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Howard. We'll make sure all of your information is in the show notes for anybody who might want to get in touch with you as uh, in, they're in the market for an audit firm. I can't recommend Howard enough. Really appreciate your being here. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Thank you.